Visionary entrepreneur and spiritual teacher Paul O'Brien is a living example of an individual who walks the path of success, but not just because of his great decisions and perfect timing, both of which led him to build a multi-million dollar company. Paul is a man who has dared to live his passion and to allow intuitive intelligence and spiritual selfhood to lead him on his journey. In his new book, which recently hit bestseller status, Great Decisions, Perfect Timing, Paul shares what he has learned through his personal sojourn and now shares with so many others that we are connected to an infinite intelligence and all it takes to walk the path of success in whatever form it may come is to ignite that connection. We had an amazing exchange that could have gone on for hours in which we shared his own personal journey, the importance of creative imagination, and both synchronicity and intuition, and how they are key to making great decisions at the perfect time. Paul, you know, it seems that now more than ever, people are seeking a change in life path and a deep yearning to find out their true purpose in life. And that's a good thing. But with this, uh, we're also seeing so many, it seems, driving themselves into a state of more confusion and more anxiety and more dissatisfaction from this almost a desperation for change. And as a result, their decisions and their timing are often out of kilter. And that's where your brand new book, Great Decisions, Perfect Timing, comes in. And I might say this book could not have arrived at a more perfect time. Great timing. So welcome to the show. And I'm really looking forward to hearing about what led uh, you to writing this book and your story of great decisions and perfect timing. So let's begin at the beginning, if we could. Give us a snapshot, Paul, of your fantastic journey and how your decisions and timing played into this incredible life path of yours. Well, thank you very much, Alexis. Um, I think where. What I discovered in my uh, life path is that it all depends, success, in whatever terms you define that for yourself, depends upon self-knowledge. And I discovered that, quite synchronistically, I discovered an intersection between two fascinations that I had um, discovered when I was in stage one of life, the student stage, mm-hmm. where we learn CR, what we're good at, and what we like to do. And I have a whole chapter in the book, uh, Great Decisions, Perfect Timing, about uh, self-knowledge, and especially stage one, which lasts until we're 30 years old. And I encourage kids to try things, to experiment, to go on adventures, and to avoid making premature lifetime commitments until the end of stage one and give themselves a chance to find out what they like and what they're good at. And in my case, there were two things that I became fascinated with in my youth. One at the age of 19 was this thing called the I Ching, which is the oldest book in the world. It's the Chinese book of changes. And it's more than a book. It's an oracle system. And it was my introduction to the whole world of divination. Now, I already knew about astrology, having grown up in San Francisco in the 60s, how could I not? But I became, this, this girl showed me this uh, thing on campus at UC Berkeley where I was an undergrad. She showed me this thing called the I Ching and told me it was a, a, a system for answering questions that logic can't handle, and uh, she encouraged me to try it. Well, I was, I'm pretty open-minded, but I was much more interested in her than I was <laughs> in this uh, big 
old book that she was carrying around. But I, I played along because I was interested in her. And um, so I wrote down, she had me write down a question, and I wrote down something that really didn't mean anything to me because I was just basically being a smart aleck and, you know, like young men uh, will do on occasion. I thought, you know, that being a smart aleck was a way to get her, atten a positive way to get her attention. Anyway, I was kind of making fun of it in a, a immature, snarky sort of way. And so I, I tossed the coins as she showed me, and lo and behold, I got back the archetype um, in the I Ching. They're called hexagrams, and there's 64 archetypes. There's mm -hmm. 64 and I got back number four, which is entitled Youthful Folly. And it's described as a situation where the student lacks respect for the teacher. Hmm. And I thought, wait a minute. It completely ignored my question, but it did a pretty good job of reflecting my energy. I made fun of it, and it's making fun of me. I said, hey, let me try that again. So this time, uh, once again, I didn't have a, a serious question, but I wrote something down, and I cast the coins, and it came back with text that said, questioning the sincerity of the seeker. And I thought, uh, now I'm testing it, and it's testing me. And that was a big aha moment for me, and I became fascinated by this thing uh, called the I Ching. And I studied it for the rest of my life ever since, and I used it to stimulate my intuition around problems that logic can't handle. Mm -hmm. This is another... This is another data point, not as a fortune-telling thing, but as just a way to stimulate my intuition. And so that was my first major fascination in stage one. And then a few years later, um, I had a friend who worked at this computer center. And in those days, in the mid-'70s, a computer would take up a whole room, and they called them mini-computers. <laughs> and this, this computer cost $150,000, took up a half of a room, with all kinds of duct uh, 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 air conditioning and raised floors and gigantic mag tapes, and it had one tiny little terminal the size of an oscilloscope. And my friend was the programmer there, and he would let us in at night because he had the keys, and we would go there, and we would commandeer this gigantic machine and play this game called Space War that some programmers at MIT had uh, created for these mini-computers. And uh, we would play it for hours on end, and I was just fascinated once again. And I was this time I was fascinated by software. Not so much the game. I've never been really uh, uh, much of a gamer. And this was five years before Pong. This was five years before Apple but uh, even existed. But I was fascinated by the concept of software, um, the whole idea that somebody could write some code and deliver an immersive experience through a screen, that to me was like a form of wizardry. I thought, this is amazing. That really spoke to me. And I said, I got to get a job here. I got to get a job in this industry. This is just too, too exciting. Who would have thought? So that was my second fascination with software. And specifically, I had visions of multimedia. Now, this is back in 1974. I mean, we didn't have CD-ROMs until 1993. So we didn't have CD-ROMs for another 20 years, but I was already imagining all the things that might be done with programming to create immersive or educational experiences uh, as well as uh, entertaining ones. So 
so that was a fascination that kind of stuck with me. I got a job there, and I got, that's how I got my first job in the software industry. I dropped out of college, and I became a secretary because I could type. And I got a job as a secretary for $660 a month mm-hmm. at, at the Oregon Research Institute, which was the nonprofit that had that computer center. And I was in, I've been associated with that industry ever since. And within 15 years, I became a vice president of marketing and sales for a high-tech company here in Portland. And um, there was no multimedia involved. It was really pretty dry. And even though I had learned a tremendous amount about marketing um, and uh, software, I was very unhappy with my job. It was a very dysfunctional company. The CEO was just um, a you-know-what. I mean, he made Steve Jobs look like an easy guy to work for. <laughs> and the office politics were just ridiculously uh, brutal. And I found myself casting the I Ching more often than mm. usual to the point where I was bringing it to work. Now, what was it doing for me? Well, you know, these Eastern, um, these Eastern philosophies allow for the fact that there's more than one solution to every problem. In the West, you know, we're very assertive, and we, we think it's always best to attack the problem, assert ourselves, make it happen. Well, in the martial arts, which I had studied also as a youth, we know that there's a time to retreat, and there's a time to do nothing and just let conditions change. You don't always have to assert yourself. And, and remember that show, uh, Kung Fu? Mm-hmm. Grasshopper asked the master, what should he do if somebody attacks him? And the master says, if, if you have a chance to, run like hell. And <laughs> that kind of illustrates the point that there's a time to retreat, there's a time to do nothing. So I found that helpful in this brutal environment where I happened to be the scapegoat at that particular season. And then it occurred to me, gosh, I wish I could do this um, consult to I Ching on the computer because we were a Macintosh company. This was in 86. We were very early. Um, and we, but it was high tech. It was Macintosh networking software. And uh, I thought, well, there's this graphical interface. Here's the first computer on business desktops that's got a graphical interface. And I find this tool, the I Ching, to help me with my decision making. You know, maybe I, I wish I could do it on the computer. And then the light bulb went off, and I go, well, why not? Let's give it a try. And so I had saved. Uh, I had savings of about forty thousand dollars at that point because I was doing. I had a secure job. I was making a lot of money. Mm-hmm. I took it all and went out and found a programmer uh, at Reed College, and I found an artist. And unbeknownst to me, I created one of the first multimedia titles, um, which was an interactive version of Casting the I Ching. This uh, was before multi. At that time, multimedia meant a slideshow and a tape recorder. Like I said, we didn't have CD-ROMs, but um, I used two floppy disks, and we had a little Japanese garden scene and a little bit of sounds, and I put some frogs in there. and hmm. it, was really, it was really kind of fun, and I created this prototype, and, I, and the dead gum thing worked. And I thought, God, this is just amazing. If, you know, I want to I publish this and, so that other people can have access to it. And that's how I became... Um, an accidental entrepreneur. Accidental. Well, you know, I want to I want to stop you there, Paul, because that's that's quite a story. I mean, that is quite a trajectory. And I have to ask you at this point, you know, as you listen to various stories like yours, which, you know, at first blush, it would seem that they're all sort of just kind of falling into place with no um, 
with no, I don't want to say meaning, but without any uh, infrastructure per se in place, because you just kept stumbling upon things and your passion obviously was driving this. But as you reflect now, after all of this that you've done, do you feel that there was some sort of a a spiritual uh, underpinning that was guiding you in this on this path? In other words, was this meant, well, it was obviously meant for you, but do you know what I mean? It seems like none of these are accidents, of course. I do what you do know what you mean. And in in hindsight, I've come to learn a lot of things about um, the way things happen and how things come together in time. Mm -hmm. And that's why, that's why I wrote this whole book about perfect timing. Um, and about the whole subject of decision making and, 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 and making the right moves at the right time is a decision. Um, I think that, it, so what has developed out of that is a whole new way of looking at life. And I have a whole chapter in the book, chapter 11, it's called Belief Engineering. Mm-hmm. It's, it's basically uh, making the point that beliefs are operating assumptions, and it's important to have a, a good operating assumptions. But like any other operating assumption, beliefs need to be upgraded occasionally. It's like an app on your smartphone. You need to upgrade it every once in a while. And so many in our culture, you know, we have a longstanding tradition of being rigid about beliefs, about being dogmatic, about having faith being defined as holding to a certain set of beliefs that were carved in stone 3,000 years ago or whatever. Um, And so I've got some beliefs now that pertain to your question, like, for instance, I choose to believe, and I accept it as an operating assumption, that everything happens for a reason, Mm -hmm. that there are no accidents, and that those fascinations that I discovered in stage one, and that I never, and that I held on to, and and which I then created, uh, developed an intersection between them. I developed the intersection between the I Ching, uh, an ancient uh, intuitive decision-making aid, and multimedia software. Mm-hmm. That was what, that was my invention was discovering that intersection, but it was an intersection between two things that I had been fascinated uh, about for 20 years. Absolutely, so yeah. It's no, accident, it's no accident that I was fascinated by those things, and this is how, when I tell people, figure out what you're fascinated by or what you were fascinated by, that's going to point to your mission in life um, and, and, and what you're supposed to be doing. Well, you know, thank you for that. And that, I think that's a great explanation. Um, you know, there's so many nuggets in this book that I want to get to. And I know the audience is probably wondering, what is he talking about with stage one? And I want to get to that because there's actually three very critical stages um, in, in your process that I'd like to get to. But before we get there, because there are a few areas I really want to cover heavily, um, I, I want to ask, you know, it's said that some people, particularly when you think of innovators and uh, captains of industry uh, like Steve Jobs, the late Steve Jobs and Conrad Hilton, or these days Mark Zuckerberg, they have, it's said, what is called the Midas touch, or everything they touch turns to gold. Do you think, Paul, that for some people it just comes with more ease? And again, I want to emphasize uh, that we're not just talking about amassing extreme wealth, but achieving success in all forms. Do some people just have a natural ability to manifest, do you think? Well, I don't know the history of Conrad Hilton at all. It's an interesting story, by the way. It has to do with intuition, but we can cover that later. Yes, Hilton Hotel. I know know Steve Jobs' story pretty well. I followed it uh, throughout his entire career. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he had a lot of setbacks. 
he had a lot. It wasn't much like a smooth, uh, steady, upward path for him, and it wasn't for me either. And I think that there are there are people who have the wherewithal to uh, have um, confidence, to have faith in themselves. That's a belief, sure. and and who are um, able to over who are able to feel the fear and do it anyway. And those, I think that has more to do with success than any uh, genetic endowments, although certainly intelligence helps um, and good health helps. But I, I think basically passion comes from believing that you're entitled to be fascinated by whatever you want to be fascinated by and, 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 um, and, and being willing to take some risks uh, and, and, and make some what I call visionary decisions uh, in order to do so. And these are decisions, these are the big ones, these are the life-changing decisions, you know, should I get married, changing careers, um, what, uh, or some, I just was talking to somebody who made a visionary decision about dying, and they mm. decided they were going to stop doing chemotherapy and that they were going to embrace death. I mean, my God, that's, that's a big decision. Yeah. So. You know, being willing to make the big decisions and to take the risks that grow you. So I think, you know, some people are better at taking the right risks than others. A lot of people take risks because they want some external uh, pot of gold at the end of some um, rainbow. And, and, but then there are, like me, I, I, I left a secure position in a growing industry in a high-paying position in order to become an entrepreneur to develop something that had meaning for me. So mm -hmm. the risks that grew me were to choose meaning over money. The irony is, is that money came because later, you know, I added, um, we created CD-ROMs, I added a do-it-yourself tarot card CD-ROM, and then I, I added astrology and, and, and uh, my little business, which had no investors, and no family money, um, bootstrap entrepreneur mm -hmm. uh, grew in, grew to become a $20 million company that was the largest astrology website in the world. And then I sold that in 2007. Um, and I was motivated by this, this ideal that I had, which I thought of as creative freedom. And when I was the VP of marketing for that company, that brutal, uh, the, the, where all the office politics were happening, um, I, I just wanted creative freedom. And creative freedom was a very modest goal for me. Mm -hmm. it, just, it just meant being able to make a living uh, doing something that was meaningful to me, something that I cared about. Um, and so I left the security um, and took that risk in order to move towards creative freedom, never imagining that I Ching software would ever do anything. I mean, it would have been a miracle just to make a living. Absolutely. I think a niche like that. I mean, it was so far ahead of its time. But if, um, now my creative freedom is, 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 is beyond the pale, and I run a nonprofit, and I just in, in spend all of my time giving back and helping people. I have, you know, it's an amazing story because I wasn't trying to, I wasn't money motivated. I think there's a, I think there's a message implicit in that that is so strong, and I'm coming up with a little phrase as you're talking, Paul. Meaning manifests, 
meaning is what draws manifestation, whether it's a manifestation, an external manifestation of monetary, uh, uh, you know, um, regard in a monetary regard, or just uh, be, being able to uh, express that passion and, the, and feeling gratitude toward that meaning does manifest. That is a fantastic story. You know, I want to bring up something uh, else, you know, that I think is connected. And that has to do with belief. You've, you've mentioned belief in, in several on several occasions already. And I want to spend a, a few minutes talking about faith versus belief. You know, we hear all the time simple phrases like believe in yourself, believe in your dreams, believe you can do it. But, you know, when I replace the word belief with faith, to me, it takes on an even more powerful connotation. In your estimation, Paul, what's the difference between faith and belief? Well, faith can mean different things in different contexts to different people. Uh-huh. A, lot of people a lot of people, faith means dogmatic orthodoxy. Uh-huh. In other words, article, as in articles of faith, as in the things that you are required to believe in order to be saved and go to heaven. Uh-huh. But um, I, I like to go back to the Latin, fideo, uh, and I like the word confidence, which is a, a combination of con and fideo, which means to believe in yourself. Mm-hmm. And, to me, and to me, that is the highest faith. Is, you know, if you want to put it in, 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 in um, religious terms, you can say um, that God endowed you with certain capacities, including intuition, and that um, he or she wants you to trust yourself. And that's what happened for me was I was on a Buddhist meditation retreat, oh, 30 years ago, mm-hmm. and just to try it. And the teacher told this story about the Buddha, which I have in the book, uh, Great Decisions, Perfect Timing. I, I recount this because it was a big uh, 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 eye-opener for me. And the story was the, uh, the Buddha's uh, visiting this tribe, and the tribe leaders say, excuse us, sir, but every two weeks we have another um, great teacher come through here, and often th- this one contradicts what the last one told us to the point where we don't know what to believe. Mm-hmm. And the Buddha's response to that was, your confusion is understandable, and my advice is simply this. Don't put your faith in teachers. Don't put your faith in tradition. Don't put your faith in scriptures. Don't even believe what I'm telling you unless it rings true for you okay. in here, points to his heart. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, I've never been encouraged to trust myself. Hmm. I've always been told what to think, what to believe, and what to feel even. Right. You know, and here's this, this, this path that's encouraging uh, self trusting yourself and believing in yourself and and self-reliance in that way. And that just changed my life. Now, I don't consider myself an ist or an ism, but uh, I try to take the best of every tradition um, and when it comes to religions and, 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 and things like that. So when I think of faith, you know, I think that faith should be provisional. Mm-hmm. And, beliefs, and beliefs should be provisional. They should always be subject to testing and upgrading. And, you know, if you have a belief that, and sometimes you can't prove, I mean, what can we prove anyway, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, modern science science shows that we can't prove anything. You know, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which has been around for a long time now, shows that when you observe something, you actually affect the thing you're observing. So you can never have a completely objective uh, judgment about anything. So we believe what makes sense to us. And so I tell people, have faith in yourself 
and believe what makes sense to you both logically and intuitively. Mm -hmm. I think that's beautifully said, and I couldn't agree more. And, you know, the audience will probably get sick of hearing me say this again, but I'm going to repeat it because I think it's apropos. And this is a quote that I have put out there uh, for quite some time. And that is, seeing is believing, but experiencing is knowing. Seek to experience, and you will never have to believe again. Now, that may seem a little contradictory at first, but I really feel, Paul, that belief and knowing two different things. Now, sure, believe in yourself, but I think that when you eliminate or when you have an experience, even if it's just adopting a feeling or a sense of something, you alleviate the need to believe. Because belief to, to me typically comes when somebody has put an idea in your mind and you have made the decision to adopt that. Um, but when you have a firsthand experience, you almost skip the stage of belief and you go into a, a state of knowing. And by the way, I think this would be a, a perfect kickoff to get into uh, your book and how we're going to, I want to talk about those three stages of what you call visionary decision-making or VDM. And, you know, the first stage, if I'm understanding this correctly, is what we're talking about. Know thyself. Know, right, know right. who you are. And I couldn't agree more. I've, I've heard several of your interviews and how you've talked about how you mentor young people in this regard and really try to get them to, you know, go ahead and play around with certain jobs and, and really get to understand who you really are, not based on what society says you should be, but what you're really feeling, which is something I think you intuitively, you intuitively knew to do. So and uh, on your path for sure. So let's go. Well, I was lucky. I grew up in a time, you know, when, when the hippies were modeling, um, you know, this extreme freedom to experiment and to try things and to buck the system. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of kids these days are really oppressed by this, um, you know, by this imperative to become a billionaire by the time you're 27, like Mark Zuckerberg or Christian Gray. <laughs> but um, I, 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 you know, I, I, I see, I meet a lot of kids that, you know, they have to, they feel like they need to be on track from the time they're 19. They start college and then they've got to make some huge decision that's going to put them 50 to $100,000 in debt possibly. And, you know, that's just really wrong and I don't blame them. I think it's criminal that banks will give them loans that they cannot, that, that they can never get out of uh, and put these monkeys on their back before their brain is fully developed and allow kids to make decisions like that. Yes. But I, I think it's terrible that they have all this pressure to declare a career before they're 25. And I tell them, you know, wait, wait, you know, try things, mm -hmm. drop out, try things, job hop, date a lot. Don't feel like you have to make these, you know, I, I say you're doing the right thing mm -hmm. but it, by, by um, fooling around a little bit, by playing you know, by experimenting, by trying to find out what turns you on, that is the right thing to do in stage one. Now, of course, the professors at the, you know, at the university, they don't like to hear me say this. I've given this talk at, at school, and they're not exactly wild about it because it, 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 it flies in the face of their paradigm. But um, that's how you discover what you're good at and what you like to do, not by making a sure lifetime commitment. Um, you know, how many kids have become have gone to law school because their father was a lawyer and it was always expected of them? Or how many girls have had a baby because their mother, because that's what their mother did? You know, we need to get more creative. We need more creative freedom. 
And so it's, and we've got to stop putting so much pressure on these kids. And when I tell these kids this, they, you know, a lot of them breathe a huge sigh of relief. Mm. Nobody's ever told them that before. Everybody's just guilt tripping them because they're not more committed than, than, than they really feel. Yeah, kudos to what you're doing. I've got to tell you, and I hope we have a, a moment or two to talk offline, that you and I share so many similar philosophies. I, too, have mentored uh, students when my husband and I had our business and we had an internship program and I would interview the college kids that would come in and it, the same thing really you know and my question to them would not be what do you want to be when you grow up not at all my question is what do you love and they would kind of look at me Paul perplexed as if to say well I was told I could make a lot of money at it. and I'd stop no 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 that is not what I'm asking you and so I would take them down that road as well and really try to uh, get them to unlearn what society had definitely put in place for them to learn. And that is find your path, find it quickly and, and don't relent. So I agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. And here, here. Oh, I mean, if, if their parents or grandparents are going to pay for it, well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> but if they're not happy, you know, then it's money in vain as far as I'm concerned. So, well, you know, let's stick with the, the VDM. I want to reiterate what this wonderful acronym stands for, and that's Visionary Decision Making. And this is really the crux of your book, I would say. And it's a great model with some great illustrations. We talked about a little bit about the first stage. Uh, it's a three-stage model. If we could go into a little bit of a, a snapshot of what the second and third stage entails and why that's so important in the visionary decision-making process. Oh, it's an evolution, and so there's different kinds of decisions that need to be made at the different stages of life. And So I divide life into three stages. Now, that's fairly arbitrary. I mean, there are a lot of books written on the passages of life, and there's a lot of different ways of slicing and dicing it. Um, I've sort of gone with uh, from 0 to 30, uh, 30 to, or 0 to 29, 29 to 58, and, and 58 to 87. Mm -hmm. So in astrology, we have this thing called the Saturn return. Saturn has an orbit of roughly 29 years. So when Saturn comes back to the position it was in at your birth, you're 29 years old. And so that's considered a big life change um, uh, pivot point uh, in, from, in astrology, from an astrologer's point of view. Then it happens again at 58 or 59. And so... I divide life into these three sections, and it kind of seems to work out pretty well, although you don't have to believe in astrology. So stage two, stage one, is about learning who you are, uh, what you love, and what you like to do. And the biggest, probably the most important decision, strategic decision, which is what the book's about, visionary decisions, is uh, I refer to strategic decisions as visionary if you learn how to activate your intuition mm -hmm. in order. Um, but the strategic decisions during stage one are answering the question, what is the next thing I want to explore? What is the next thing I want to try? So it's not like a big, huge deal. Now you get to stage two, and stage two is when you make a commitment to develop your skills further in some, uh, in some area that um, has, has, has caught you has caught your fascination. So that's when we, I call that the builder-provider stage. And that's when you build a life. You build a career, you build a family, whatever it is that you're inspired to, to do. And this book, even though my story is a story of business success, um, kind of accidental business success, but there are no accidents, right? Mm, that's right. But, 
but my, these principles of visionary decision making and uh, activating intuition um, for uh, better decisions and better timing apply to any uh, uh, any definition of success. And I have a thing in the book about how to define success for yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, for somebody it might be just you know raising a family. For somebody it might be dedicating themselves to a cause or to nonprofit work. Whatever it is, doesn't matter. But stage two is about building um, that career, getting uh, a sta- uh, create, manifesting uh, mastery over the core skills, mm-hmm. and they say it takes 10,000 hours to master anything, and 10,000 hours is going to take about 10 years uh, because there's 2,000 hours in the average year, work year. Of course, people work a lot more than that, but and only half of those are going to be applied to whatever the, the core skill is. Um, and so stage two, you, you, you learn to provide, or you provide for yourself and maybe others, in the case of a family or parents or whatever, so stage two is the builder-provider stage, and, um, and stage three uh, is the patron stage. That's the one I'm just starting. That's where we give back. It involves mentoring, um, perhaps writing, uh, philanthropy, um, and, and the practice of generosity um, to help future generations, which is why I take so much joy in, in, in mentoring and coaching younger people. So those are the three stages, and they involve different kinds of decisions, but the principles of visionary decision-making uh, apply to all three of them. Mm-hmm. So let's say somebody were to come across the VDM model, uh, if you will, and they're, if we're looking at an age range, they're already into what would be considered the, the second stage because of their age. Let's say they wanted to go back and go through that again. It's really start all over. What would you say to that? Let's say somebody were 40 or 50 and wanted to go through that process. Yeah. Well, they might want to, they, they might be facing a, a, a huge uh, life-changing um, decision like changing careers. Mm-hmm. I run up against this quite a bit when I give speeches and stuff. Uh, people come up to me afterwards and they go, oh, I was really inspired by what you said. And, you know, I've been doing this thing for, for 25 years, but I really want to do something that's more... Um, creative that's going to give me more creative freedom. And um, so they need to uh, make a decision and they need to decide um, uh, they need to decide which direction they want to move in because I call that the the expulsive power of a higher affection. Hmm. (laughs) You have a high, if you're drawn towards something, see what we don't want to do, and this is what's too easy and this doesn't work this doesn't get you what you want, is the attitude, geez, I'm not sure what I want, but I am sure this isn't it. Yeah, I've heard that before. <laughs> I mean, that's the easiest thing to say, and everybody's felt that way at one time or another, or maybe a lot of the time, but that's not going to get you what you want. Mm-hmm. You have to be drawn towards it. You have to have a vision. You have to have, it has to come from the heart. You know, it's easy to... Uh, judge how horrible something is that you already have, or, or to be cognizant of the of the downsides of what you already have. I, I remember a story when I was in, when I was 30, I decided that I wanted to travel around the world, and I was I had a job right as a sales manager for a software company, and I wanted to take a year off. I called it a sabbatical, and nobody was paying for it but me. But <laughs> I wanted to, I wanted to go around the world and learn about meditation and 
and, uh, and, and visit other cultures and learn what it means to be a citizen of the world. And if I got lucky, maybe even meet an enlightened being because I was going to go to India. I was very curious about yoga and meditation and, and, and these spiritual technologies. And so I thought, man, I'm so friggin' sick of this high-tech, this digital, this cold-hearted digital world. I'm, I just want to change. So I'm going to go take this sabbatical, and then I'm going to come back, and I'm going to do something else. Well, you know, the truth is I was cognizant of all the things I didn't like about what I was doing, and a lot of it ha was circumstantial. Because when I came back, and I was gone for two years, I traveled around the world, I stayed in all these uh, monasteries and ashrams and things like that, um, and uh, I learned to become a meditation teacher, and I came back, and, and I needed a job because I'd spent all of my savings. And that was part of my self-discovery process at the end of stage one. And um, I came back and I thought, wow, I need a job. And, you know, I kind of missed that software industry. Mm -hmm. I had enough, you know, I had enough time to get to let go of all of that residual stuff that was really not so much about the industry. And so then I went and found uh, another job in software. So that was my day job. You know, that was my, everybody's got a day job. And I make a big a point of talking about this to people. I have a day job right now. My day job right now is managing my investments, which requires some pretty strategic decision-making mm -hmm. uh, every so often. And I've got to pay taxes, and now I'm running a nonprofit, and I've got to manage people. And, you know, everybody's got a day job. Even the, the greatest artists in the world have a day job. Mm -hmm. they've got to, even if they have all the managers they could ever want, they've got to manage the managers. That's right. <laughs> You still have to make executive decisions. And this is what I tell people in the book. You are the CEO of your own life no matter what. Even if you're working for a large corporation, you're actually working for yourself. You may have, you may have made a deal to exchange time and energy in exchange for money and benefits with a major corporation, but that's a choice you've made, and you have the freedom to go somewhere else. And people, I don't think people appreciate their day job enough because we always want more. It's never... You know, sort of like if you think back 300 years ago, we had no freedom at all. We couldn't choose our occupation. We couldn't choose where we were going to live. We were going to live in that same village our whole life. And, and we couldn't even choose who we married. Mm -hmm. That's right. You know, the amount of freedom that we have now is like staggering. And so for me, I wanted more creative freedom, and I don't begrudge that to anybody. So I tell people, I'm um, coaching somebody right now who wants to leave a high-tech executive position um, in order to become an author and a speaker. And I'm saying, you know, you want more creative freedom, but don't malign your day job. I mean, you're good at it. It, make, you know, it, it provides you financial security. When I became an entrepreneur, I continued to work for that company uh, for two years as a marketing consultant because I needed the income. So it's okay. You can increase your creative freedom in incremental ways even while you maintain your day job. Maybe there's some way you can reduce your hours. Maybe you can do job sharing, you know, if you need more time in order to, to, to spread your wings and to try something, no matter what age you are. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I encourage people to um, change careers because we live so long. You know, we're, we're, a lot of us are going to live to be 100 years old. We're living through like three or four lifetimes compared to our great-grandparents. Mm. So in a nutshell, even if you're 80, you can still go through the three stages of <laughs> visionary decision-making. <laughs> you can revisit things that fascinated you. Maybe you were fascinated by music, yeah. but you didn't think you could make a living at it. Well, you don't have to make a living at it. You can just 
you, you know, in other words, creative freedom doesn't necessarily mean, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be a livelihood. It's just sort of getting in touch with your heart, you know, and that's really the, how you tell if something's a visionary decision or not. It's like heart check. Is it coming from your heart? Is it really reflective of something that you naturally love? And somehow we're wired for these things. Like you said, it's as if there's some destiny. And I have a whole thing in the book about destiny and about destiny. I think of destiny as a goddess. And in fact, destiny was a goddess in the Roman and Greek times. It was the goddess Fortuna, as in the word, as in the word fortune. Um, and, you know, so I have this whole metaphor of living the synchronistic lifestyle, which is chapter 12 of the book. And what a beautiful thing that is. When, when we've upgraded our beliefs so that we know everything happens for a reason and there are no accidents and that change is our friend, and I list a number of beliefs that people can try on, when we start uh, incorporating those into our daily consciousness, life becomes more like a dance. And, it's, and I call it dancing with destiny. Dancing dancing with your destiny. Um, so uh, that's kind of the, it's, or you could compare it to surfing. And you can start doing that at any age um, to any extent. And you don't have to like go all or nothing on it and, you know, find a, people imagine if I find just the, per they think right livelihood means the perfect career where I'm going to be happy all the time and I'm not going to have to deal with the crappy parts of, of work. And uh, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be able to transcend having a day job because I'm going to make money doing what I love to do. Mm -hmm. Well, you know that that's true. You know that that's true for some people. But right livelihood originally meant making a living doing something that didn't bring harm to yourself or the environment or to others. It was very simple. And if you have a way to make a living, uh, you know, in other words, I want people to appreciate and accept their day job and accept the fact and be grateful for it and accept the fact that they're always going to have a day job component to their life no matter what and avoid all or nothing fantasies of creative freedom because that's just the ego that's attached to fantasies of, you know, omnipotence and, and, and absolute freedom. Mm, wow. That's a lot to chew on. Well, you know, you, you said the word synchronicity, and that was a trigger for me as I'm looking at the clock, because I really want to spend, we have about 20 minutes left. Uh, I really want to spend some time, Paul, getting into, as I think I said to you, one of my favorite subjects in the world, and that is synchronicity as well as intuition. You know, let's take our time with this, because <clears throat> these are two, to me, very critical elements in understanding the fine art of great decision-making with perfect timing. Now, in the book, you highlight the work of who many consider, including myself, the father of synchronicity, and that's Carl Jung. Uh, how, in your estimation, does synchronicity factor into the process of making great decisions and when to make them? Okay, so there's two components to making a decision. You've got to answer two questions. Mm -hmm. what, what is the best next move to make? Kind of the same question a chess player has to ask himself or uh, a go player. And the second question is, and when should I pull the trigger? That's the timing question. Question number one, you can use some logic with that, and I have a chapter on um, a, a logic uh, exercise that's better than pros and cons, much better. And, and uh, you can, and, but intuition, it's got to be led by intuition. These big decisions are always led by intuition. They're always led by the heart, not by the ego. 
the second question is the timing question. When should I make the move? The timing question is completely intuitive. And the timing question is related to synchronicity, which is Carl Jung's concept. So in part one of the book, I explain uh, synchronicity and archetypes and uh, a couple of other esoteric uh, psychological discoveries of Carl Jung. And, and then in chapter one of the chapters in part two, I talk about synchronicity, the psychology of perfect timing. And what synchronicity means is that everything uh, is related in time as well as in space. And, you know, in the West, we've always, in Western science, we've tried to answer the question, what are things made of? And we take things apart, and we put them back together in different combinations, and we've created some great technologies and, and advances uh, doing that. But in, the ancient, uh, in ancient China and in the East, where, we, where Taoism and, and the martial arts and, and, and Buddhism come from, they were trying to answer a different question, which is what kinds of things go together in time? In other words, they were concerned about timing. Now, in Western science, we don't even take time into consideration. If I do this controlled uh, experiment at Monday at noon and I do the same thing Thursday night, I expect it to come out exactly the same. The, the timing doesn't make any difference. But timing is super important for all kinds of issues relationships, politics, negotiating, uh, you know, making your move at the right time is a timing issue. And that's why they say timing is everything, because it's so hard to do. So you need to realize that things are related in time. And the more you realize that, the more you start to notice these amazing coincidences that you might have dismissed as mere coincidences uh, before, but now you realize, oh, my God, it must mean something. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. You don't always know what it means, but you know that something meaningful happened. Maybe you don't know what it meant for two years. Or more. Oh, I've had synchronicities. I call them retro synchronicities, actually, that I've talked about, that things that have happened 20 years ago. It was 20 years hence that I realized the significance. So I agree. I I have to ask you this question because we're really focusing on the time element and synchronicity. This is a bit of a paradox. I want to just run by you, um, and it has to do with timing. Now, you know, we stress that timing for decision-making or timing in general is critical. And yet, interestingly, Paul, you know, the insight that we often get, particularly through the intuitive channel, or even using particular divination methods, exist in a dimension that's outside of time, <laughs> which is, it is a bit of a paradox. How, how might we explain that? We need perfect timing on the one hand, and yet the information we're gleaning to make decisions is born out of no time or space, that which we call sort of that non-local connection. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, we live a paradoxical life. <laughs> sure do. They say that we are spiritual beings having a physical experience. So, you know, from an egocentric point of view, you know, we're, we're each individual and, and each separate. And from the cosmic point of view, everything is interconnected, and we are all just uh, beams of consciousness uh, reflecting back um, the glory of all. So, you know, it's, there's, there's no real way to, the definition of a paradox is something that can't be logically explained. That's right. This, this applies to things like intuition, too, which is why modern psychology has largely ignored it. And that's why I like, because modern psychology wanted to, uh, to it modeled itself after the physical sciences. Um, and so anything that can't be measured doesn't really matter. But there's all of these paradoxical things in life that matter hugely, you know, like intuition, creativity, all of these kinds of things. And Carl Jung was the one psychologist 
that basically saw that there's all of uh, uh, there's all of this human potential that comes through these things that um, uh, that that the physical scientists would reduce to brain chemistry. And we hear this we hear this a lot. Oh, it's just chemicals in the brain, and blah blah blah. And uh, Carl Jung saw that there's all of these motifs and these patterns. He called them archetypes that exist in all the cultures on Earth and in the dreams of human beings across cultures. And, and people would have dreams with symbology in them that did not relate to anything that happened to them personally in this lifetime. Where did that come from? And that's how he developed uh, his concept of the collective unconscious. We have, we have a personal unconscious, which might be all reflective of all of the traumas that we had as a child or whatever, but there's this much broader reservoir um, that includes uh, all kinds of creative elements and um, and synchronicities come, I like to think synchronicities come from there. And how do we tune into that? It's like the cloud, you know, it's like you have a wireless connection to the cloud. What is the antenna? It's your intuition, the sixth sense, this delicate little uh, sensory uh, organ, the intuition can tune into these very subtle frequencies, but it can't do it if, we, if it's drowned out by all the noise of the other five senses, which it usually is. And then it's and then it's blocked by all of this emotional uh, um, uh, blockages within us, like fear, and especially uh, all the different forms of fear. Um, so I think it's almost a, a miracle anytime somebody has an intuitive insight. And that's why I wrote the book, is because my decisions, uh, my biggest decisions in my life had a huge intuitive component, and I wanted to figure out how did I do that in, in order to help other people get access to their intuition and so there's a whole there's a whole chapter on how to activate how to awaken and activate your intuitive sense because you can't count on it when you need it most. It's hard to tell the difference between a gut feeling and a fear reaction. It's hard to tell whether you're being motivated by your heart or your head unless you go through a process, which is part of the visionary decision making process that I outlined in the book Great Decisions, Perfect Timing. Mm -hmm. That's, again, um, you know, so many people, all of us, the best of us that have been practicing this fine art of recognizing intuition, we're still dumbfounded, uh, not only by how, how it works, but how to recognize it. And, you know, I, I want to stay on this a little bit longer. You know, you, you talk about infinite intelligence, what I like to call universe. You said something in your book that I love. You said, uh, according to a timing all its own, infinite intelligence, or I, I don't know if I brought this up before, like a metaphysical lightning storm, you mentioned synchronicities are like a metaphysical lightning storm. Um, I, I love the way you put that. I want to get your thoughts on this and see what you think. You know, I've been speaking to a lot of people in my work uh, about the synchronicities that they've been having. I, I also counsel people with uh, intuition and developing intuitive abilities. And we're talking about so many people, Paul, are talking about people are talking about having increased synchronicities in recent times, on a, on a more regular basis. Maybe even in the past ooh, six to twelve months, more people are saying, "I'm having synchronicities." Now we know there's a lot of discussion about the Earth's frequency shifting and raising, and perhaps our own consciousness is doing the same. Could it be that the timing of these accelerations of synchronicity? are causing people to be more in tune with synchronicity. Well, I think people are becoming more in tune with synchronicity simply because they're becoming more conscious. And I think the Internet contributed to that. I think that we're just becoming... I, I'm very hopeful about the future of humanity, even though we face some uh, seemingly intractable, intractable problems. Um, we're, we're getting access to uh, 
create creative powers that we never knew we had and a sensitivity to the synchronicities that are happening. See, here's the thing, Alexis. Synchronicity is happening all the time. All the time. There are no accidents. Everything is synchronistic. It's just that we don't usually notice it because a lot of times it's mundane. But, uh, you know, we only notice it when it's totally amazing, an amazing coincidence, and perhaps those are the most meaningful ones. And so if people are, re are, are acknowledging synchronicities more often, it's only because they're becoming more sensitive to it and, and they're letting go of the beliefs and, and the um, belief structures that have blocked them from acknowledging it in the past. So people are, be people are becoming more open-minded. I'm very hopeful. Yes, I agree. That's a very good point. You know, I think that there's really a confluence of things going on right now. And I, you know, happen to be a pretty aware person, really just kind of looking around at my environment, whether it's a physical environment or just an energetic environment. And we, you know, we're seeing so much flux happening uh, planetarily. But you're right, we're also seeing a flux and really kind of a turbulence going on with people's consciousness, which is really kind of a emblematic of a, of a shift that's going on. So the chaos and the challenges and the tumult are coexisting with this breakthrough sort of, you know, people becoming more aware uh, of synchronicities, um, things like that. So I do think that's true. Now, you know, another thing that you made mention of, and that's, you know, the noise that we have to contend with. This is, I don't know if the audience can hear the noise I'm contending with right now with a landscaper who showed up just on time next door. <laughs> so if you hear the sound, please forgive uh, the sound. But w we have a lot of noise. We live in an environment of noise. And so, you know, that subtle little antenna that you talk about called intuition becomes harder and harder to recognize, uh, whether we see it, hear it, however it comes through. So again, here's this other paradox. On the one hand, we're becoming more aware of synchronicities and thus acknowledging them. And on the other hand, if, if they, they kind of work interchangeably, intuition and synchronicity, we've got a lot of noise that's making us harder to recognize intuition. Dichotomy, uh, huh? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. No, we're being bombarded constantly. <laughs> yeah. On all fronts and all of our senses, it's amazing. So that's something to be aware of, and that's something to protect against. And uh, there's a chapter in the book on, on how to do that. Um, in, in order to have more intuitive insights, mm -hmm. uh, so important. Very important. I think it's and so valuable right now. Again, because of all that noise and all of the information that we're being asked to uh, take in, uh, we need some sort of a conduit. I think to distill information um, to oh. to know what's best for us, and and so it behooves us to. Oh. That's largely an intuitive process in and of itself. Absolutely. You need a good intuition. You need a good intuition to know what information to trust and what to discard because we're being bombarded with tons and tons of information more than ever before and most of it is just bogus. Most uh, there's so much bad information flying our way that you really you'd think that if you had unlimited inf access to information that you would be able to make logical decisions perfectly but au contraire it's become harder than ever because you need an intuition just to sort out what information you can trust and which you can't. Yeah, you sure do. And, that, and that's why I say intuition is an absolute necessity right now. It's not a, it's not a luxury, nor is it novelty. And so, again, your book had perfect timing for the book. I really do encourage people to read it. You know, uh, we're winding down. We've got about five minutes left. Uh, I want to spend just a couple more minutes talking about the I Ching and the role and not just the I Ching, uh, Paul, but other forms of divination that you could recommend maybe as a companion to your book that people can try. 
Well, the I Ching is the one I know the best, and I have a chapter on it, but it, the, the visionary decision-making system does not hinge on divination, even though that was part of my background. Um, it's a tool to stimulate the intuition to think outside the box around problems that logic can't handle. And the same thing is true of tarot cards. It's just a different set of archetypes. You've got 78 cards. Um, but in either case, it's not about fortune-telling. It's not about telling you what to do. It's about giving you or stimulating you to come up with more options. So it's just a tool. It's just an aid. It's not necessary, but it's fascinating, um, and it's done me a lot of good. And, Alexis, I want not, we're running out of time, and I just want to say I love your show. Oh, well, thank and, you. <laughs> and, and not only because I get to be on it, I think it's great. And, and my stage three is about the practice of generosity. And so I, I want to give back to Conscious Life News and, and your listeners, too. And before the show, I set up a private web page where anyone who's listening can get a free ebook version of Great Decisions, Perfect Timing for free. Wow. Either for, either for iPad, Kindle, Nook, or a PDF version. And all they have to do is sign up for our quarterly email newsletter which they can unsubscribe from. And I just want to give you the web page real quick. Please do. Divination.com slash free book. Now, that's a private page. There's no navigation to it, so you've got to remember, divination.com slash free book if you want to taste uh, a free electronic version. It's the entire book. Now, all the proceeds from the sales of the paperback on Amazon, etc., go to the Divination Foundation's nonprofit work. But nevertheless, um, I didn't write this book to, to make a profit. I, I wrote it because I wanted to give back, and I really appreciate you helping me do that. Well, thank you. Thank you on behalf of Conscious Life News, Conscious Inquiry, and our great listeners. I know they'll be excited about that. Say it one more time. I want to make sure everybody gets this. The, the website that they need to go to for our audience exclusively is... Divination.com slash free book. Divination. One word. Divination.com slash free book all right there it is well thank you once again this is great decisions perfect timing cultivating intuitive intelligence and by the way i want to send a, a shout out and a kudos to you paul you have reached bestseller status we have just seen so thank you this is great thank you very much no matter your age or stage in life we are living at a time when not only can we reinvent ourselves, but as Paul says, we should always be in a position to observe our life with passion and purpose and make room for the creative spark to play a central role in our lives. If you'd like to learn more about the great work of Paul O'Brien and the work that his Divination Foundation is doing, please be sure to visit his website listed at the link below. There, you can also pick up a copy of his great book, Great Decisions, Perfect Timing, Cultivating Intuitive Intelligence. I thank you for taking the time to tune in to this episode of Conscious Inquiry. Until next time, I'm your host, Alexis Brooks.